from Isaiah chapter 6, a vision of God in the temple. In the year that King Isaiah died, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and lofty, and the hem of his robe filled the temple. Seraphs were in attendance above him. Each one had six wings. With two they covered their faces, and with two they covered their feet, and with two they flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. The pivots on the threshold shook at the voices of those who called, and the house filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and live among a people of unclean lips. Yet my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphs flew to me, holding a live coal that had been taken from the altar with a pair of tongs. The seraph touched my mouth with it and said, Now that this has touched your lips, your guilt has departed, and your sin is blotted out. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? And I said, Here am I, send me. He saw the Lord sitting on a throne, high and exalted. We don't know exactly what happened to Isaiah that day. But something like a vision. A vision of entering what only the high priests were allowed to enter. The Holy of Holies. Now did you know that the high priest... actually had sewn upon his garments little bells because when he entered the Holy of Holies, he was supposed to move around. Lest he stop moving around and the bell stopped and they were afraid he was dead. This is the work of awe. And Isaiah, that day, as the vision Unfolds. I imagine he saw sitting on this throne light beams supporting and averting his eyes, and therefore all he could see was the, the train of his robe filling the whole entire temple structure. That's a lot of fabric. He couldn't even see the Lord at this point. But all of a sudden, he hears perhaps the the scratching of wings as these fiery, strange, serpentine creatures move around. And with six wings, they flew. With two, they covered their face. With two, they flew. And with two, they covered their feet. Isaiah knew this was no ordinary day. And then, as if antiphonally, he hears 
the seraph saying, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. And they kept repeating it over and over, and then things begin to shake. And I, I imagine that like we do if we've been in an earthquake, we look for the strongest structure in our house to stand under. And he must have gone to the temple foundation posts, and even they were shaking. And he says, as smoke begins to enter, woe is me. I am undone. I am a man of unclean lips and live among a people of unclean lips. And in the moment, like he imagined those high priests quaking with fear, fearing that his life was over, at that very moment he sees one of these flying, fiery creatures coming toward him with something that was burning, pulsating, And as it comes closer to his mouth, he realizes it's a live coal. At which point, I would have ducked. (laughs) But he doesn't move. But he stays still and allows the seraph to touch the coal to his mouth. And it doesn't say it hurt. There's no wincing of pain. But he hears the most lovely of words. Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. And I imagine at that moment, everything stopped shaking. He had been cleansed. He had been made pure. He had a new starting point. And at that moment, he hears the voice of a different kind, not of the seraph singing, holy, 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 but a voice of a completely different timbre and texture and meter and sound all together, saying, Whom shall I send? And who will go for us? It will nod out to the Trinity. And perhaps being filled with this new sense of cleansing, he says, Here I am. Send me. I love this prophetic call story because in most prophetic call stories, God is the one that sends people. But did you notice, God just asked for help. He didn't command or send, but asked, would someone go? And Isaiah says, here am I, send me. 
Now, I want you, you know this is a conversational sermon, so this is a good time because you're, you're, I can see the wheels just going in so many directions, and I'm really curious to know where those directions are. So I want to open it up now, and Philip's got the microphone, and I do would like you to speak into the microphone. As you hear this story, and surely this is probably one of the most well-known texts from Hebrew Scripture, or one of the top five, and perhaps you've learned something about it before or heard it before, what do you think, and I don't necessarily want the Sunday school answer, as we say, but what do you think has happened to Isaiah in this experience? He's seen the Lord. He's receptive. He's not trying to impress. He's he's scared. He's Good. I was hoping we'd get there. There's this sense when you come to your senses, when you're completely undone, there's no more trying, there's no more faking. You're completely and utterly at your end. And at that moment of holy encounter, He sees the Lord. Now, one of the things that was talked about at Free For All was, and I think it was Herb that said this, and others chimed in, that Isaiah doesn't hear the voice of God until the purification takes place. That's a key point, so I'm going to repeat it. He said, Isaiah doesn't hear the voice of God until the purification takes place. There is this amazing encounter of the holy, of being on holy ground that Isaiah has, that we are invited into every week, every day, every moment. And unlike Many experiences, we are left speechless. In the Christian church, for many, many years, the act of confession was done. It was a robust practice to confess your sins to the priest and to one another. It has a good precedent, for James, the brother of Jesus, said in the book of James 5, Confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. I find that, ironically, one of the last places we talk about confession and sin is in the church. And if we're not going to talk about it here, where else are we going to talk about it? In fact, 
I even have, there's some colleagues that I know that say they don't even use the word sin anymore. It's too offensive and too polarizing. So I was very pleased when I read an excerpt from Rachel Held Evans' book, Searching for Sunday, Loving, Leaving, and Finding the Church. In a radio interview, she was asked why she is a Christian. And after giving her part of the story about Jesus' life, death, resurrection, she said, I'm a Christian because Christianity names and addresses sin. It acknowledges the reality that the evil we observe in the world is also present within ourselves. It tells the truth about the human condition that we're not okay. Isaiah has a radical encounter with the otherness, the holiness of God. And as a result, it creates the knowledge of the vastness between his own being and Yahweh God. I want you to speak with me a little bit about this sort of cultural phenomena about sin being a bad word and the recognition of the necessity of confession as seen in this text. Bill, over here. Um, What's interesting, I think, is Isaiah faces the fear of God. And from the fear of God, he realizes that he is compelled to talk about his sin. It's a, if I uh, if I do something wrong for myself or against my fellow man, it's certainly something wrong. But it's not sin unless it's something against something greater, against a greater order, a greater God. I think one of the reasons we're here to find out what sin is. I'm not sure that we can fully recognize our own sin until we encounter the holiness of God. If, if, if we never come into the presence of His holiness, we can convince ourselves we're pretty good folk. And if we've done something to the least of them that's good, when we do something bad to the least of them, then we're doing that against God as well. You know, I'm, I'm sitting here wondering, would Isaiah have seen the sin in himself? Would he have confessed this to God 
had he not been so afraid. And I, I wonder, it, is it only in our fearful times that we admit that we have sin in our lives? Um, to, to deny sin um, is to deny the price that um, Christ paid for our salvation. I think sometimes fear will make, it, will make us look at our sin, but also I think love will. When we, when we realize uh, God's love and we realize that what we're doing is so unloving, that it's shame, you know, in, in the view of God's love. think too that people are afraid of offending people like that's almost a cultural problem now that we are so scared of offending someone or upsetting a certain group of people that we are unable to talk about what it is that they're doing or what it is that we're doing honestly okay that's a great segue let me say this Um, that's exactly where I want to go because, as you know, I want this to be more just about an individual call story and, and a call to us as the church. I think in most churches, we feel we need to come uh, spit-shined and polished instead of coming as we are into the Holy of Holies where we may encounter this God. And instead of showing our true selves, which, by the way, is the only self that can be healed. We show a side that has a brighter smile, a chipper nod when asked the very common question, how are you? Fine. In fact, I I want to give one more quote by Rachel Held Evans, who says, in many churches, the holiest... The holiest hour of the week occurs not in the sanctuary on Sunday morning, but in the basement on Tuesday night, where she describes a mix of single moms and CEOs who have gathered and others, the the smell of stale cigarettes around an AA meeting. In fact, quoting Heather Kopp, who in her memoir says, The particular brand of love and loyalty that seemed to flow so easily in recovery meetings wasn't like anything I'd ever experienced inside or outside the church. But how could this be? How could a bunch of addicts and alcoholics manage to succeed at creating the kind of intimate fellowship so many of my Christian groups had tried to achieve and failed? Many months would pass before I understood, and this is what I want you to respond to, the last thing, that people bond more deeply over shared brokenness than they do over shared beliefs. She says in her conclusion, what she finally began to understand was that people bond more deeply over shared brokenness 
than they do over shared beliefs. Okay. Well, one of the best quotes, and it's a little bit of a pithy quote, uh, Keller says, so Keller says, he'll say, um, you don't know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. And so our human egos all the time, our, our self-sufficiency that we find, or the tribes that we're in, and in brokenness, we are shed of these things, but at the same time, you don't need God in brokenness, too. You can just say, we're all broken, we're all addicts, and go to an AA meeting and talk about this higher power. Or you, there's a bar in Hendersonville right now we can go to at 11.30 on a Sunday and be wasted and say, yeah, I'm hurting, my life's falling apart. But when there's a moment when we like Isaiah, is, are, are in front of God's holiness. We all go to something. They're going to alcohol. Other people are going to whatever. But, but in the midst of the, the shedding, of having nothing, and then going to, to God in the midst of his holiness, it kind of goes back to before the cold came, he saw that, that in the midst of who he was, against God's holiness, a perfect beauty, perfect love, perfect everything, he knew there was more. So what filled the holes and gaps of his brokenness was the presence of God. And that can't happen through other people. But we will find something. If it's not God, it will corrode even the gaps of, of our brokenness, I, I believe. Uh, <laughs> I think what she said in her conclusion is just right on. And you said we come to church spitting, polished, and dressed up and looking good. And, and we do. Uh, but we do tend to bond over our belief system more than our brokenness in a church body. In a 12-step program, you're all in there in the same boat, and you know. You know the brokenness of every person in that room. And because you know of each other's brokenness, you can open up and you can share absolutely anything about your life. And you're not afraid. In a church situation, all these other people around me look all spit and polished. They don't look like they have a lot of brokenness. I don't want to tell them about my brokenness because they might judge me. They might think I'm less than. Maybe I'm not a good Christian. Maybe I don't belong here. And so I, I really buy into that conclusion. Uh, we bond more deeply over our brokenness than our beliefs. My name is David, and I'm a sinner. <laughs> I am broken. This is a fine boat we're in, so why, why can't we share that as well? Why, why is it such a struggle within a church to have that kind of transparency that allows us to support each other? More specifically, they, my name is Wayne, and I'm a recovering alcoholic. And by the grace of God, 
I haven't tasted alcohol in about 28 years now. But it's not me. (laughs) He removed that obsession a long time ago. And I live every day grateful for that deliverance. I think this is the reason why churches aren't growing in the United States, is that people from the outside look in and say, only good people go to church. And the reality is, I am a Christian because I'm a sinner. And I am here to seek absolution from the person who is leading us. And until we all admit that we are sinners every day, doing everything we do in thought, word, and deed, we will never be able to become a bonded Christian faith. My brokenness is known by God. You, I don't trust. I would like to trust you. But when I've trusted before, you stepped on my toes. You hurt me. And therefore, it's harder for me to be who I really am. I think, too, there's the fear of um, becoming the scapegoat. Like, I'm going to be real honest about something and hope you don't kick me out of the church. <laughs> like, that doesn't happen. This happens right now. It's happening all over America. That, that leads me to say I think the church needs to redefine sin. We won't go there now. Hey, I want to go there. <laughs> That my favorite definition of sin, okay, I hope if you take anything away, you'll take this. Actually, I hope you take a lot of things away. This has been very rich. But my favorite de- definition of sin is from Augustine, who said, defined it this way, as disordered love. Disordered love. There's a lot of things that we love. But over time, it gets disordered. And the love for God gets displaced with other lesser loves. And that's why we need the encounter of the Holy Presence. And the Holy Grace. And grace. And I think, and I think um, one of the helpful ways to think about this as we conclude is something I found on the Tizay website. Um, they sort of referenced it this way about, of course, around the turn of the 16th century when Copernicus said, oh, guess what? You know, the earth is not the center of the universe and the sun doesn't travel around the earth, but vice versa. And he said he li- they liken that to the way that we see God. And he said this way, When we search for what we should do in life, we at first place ourselves at the center of our world and try to make sense of it, while perhaps thinking that God is a part of our life. Then, when we encounter the holy, perhaps we'll have a Copernican revolution or an Isaiah vision that God is not just a part of our life, 
but rather we are part of God's life. But what happens is disordered love. We think we're the center of the universe. And don't we all need a place to confess? Which is why it saddens me that we've lost in many churches and traditions the ritual of confession and absolution. We need a place where we can say, you know what, I, guess what, I hold on to things too tightly. You know what, I overindulge. Do we have any other people that are addicted in the congregation? Pick your poison, right? We all have something toxic that we're drawn to. We all deny self-absorption. We all inflate our perception of others, I mean of ourselves, We all choose convenience over kindness at times. We distort facts to our benefit and become less truth-tellers than we want to. We all control too much and fear too much. And this morning, I invite you to a place of confession. To the holy of holies. You don't have to have bells on. But I do pray that you will take it seriously. I want to close with this quote. Because confession is not comfortable and it's not easy. And it doesn't make us feel good, per se, until we receive the grace. But this is the last quote I want to leave with you, and I pray that we will honor this time of of silence and public confession, if you'd like, or private. Imagine if every church became a place where everyone is safe, but no one is comfortable. Imagine if every church became a place where we told one another the truth. We might just create sanctuary. Let it be. Let it be.